From KIOS in Omaha and Exarbon Creative, you are listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today on the show, I'm talking with Mark Gudgel, who is a Omaha educator and Omaha mayoral candidate. To have your major industries pack up and leave devastates your economy. And we're on the verge of that, right? Our big businesses, our small businesses, and our young people, our talent are all evacuating this city as if it's on fire. Gudgel talks about his upbringing, his love of learning, his love of teaching, his time working in Rwanda in the aftermath of a genocide, and how his worldview was shaped by that, as well as his understanding of American politics under the philosophy that change starts with one person. Stay tuned for the conversation right here on Riverside Chats. And welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and you are in the middle of a municipal election if you are in Omaha right now. So I'm talking today with Omaha mayoral candidate and educator Mark Gudgel about his life, his philosophy, his worldview, and everything else. Here's the conversation. I'm excited to get to talk to you because looking into your background, um, you've done real things outside of the U.S., and I imagine that your experiences have given you kind of a different uh, perspective you know, both on Nebraska, but in just the way that America works and then sort of our political system. So, I mean, I, how do you feel about our country uh, right now and the, the chaos we're in? Let me start with a big, broad question before we get specific. How, how do I feel about our, I mean, honestly, I, 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 I love this country, you know, I, I, and I, I'm sure that's the standard answer, but who who would put themselves in the position to run for office and and fight for things if they didn't you know the the easy thing to do right now would be to sit back and watch all this happen and and shake my head you know um but yeah it's uh it's what how i feel about this country is that it's worth fighting for and i know i'm not the only person who feels that way and i know there's a lot of disagreement about what it is we're fighting for and how best to do that but i think perhaps there's a glimmer of hope in in the sense that many of us seem to recognize that you know this is a hill we're willing to defend to be an educator is to sort of believe in the future and to to try to steer that in some way but also it does seem like uh i think a national and a local level that a lot of what happens in our politics right now does come from kind of a place of nihilism that there are a lot of people who go into politics who don't seem to necessarily feel like i need to fight for an ideology so much as i'm here for some sort of cynical reason that i'm going to exploit that (laughs) well sure it's well and i'll tell you i you know i'm not a politician i've in fact i've never run for office before um not since college anyway and you learn a lot quickly and some of that is inspiring and some of that is disenchanting there there are certainly people uh and and many of them in elected positions that make me shake my head um that that make me angry that make me question their motives and and there's a lot to this system that's ugly it's incredible how important money is to politics Right, which only contributes to 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 wealth disparity and any number of other issues facing our our country and frankly the world. You know, um, my as an example, I suppose my campaign is going to roll out pretty detailed plans to fight climate change as uh, on a citywide basis and and to make efforts towards greater sustainability. Um, and and we're offering real tangible things that we can do that people can buy into and believe in and contribute to as a city as the largest city between denver and chicago but there there's an awful lot of opposition to that and and a lot of that boils down to money right and so whether it's hey why don't you go ahead and pump your body full of this even though we know it kills you because the people who sell that product are giving politicians money or, hey, why don't we continue to be reliant upon this fuel source, even though we know this is untenable? It's not tenable to the environment. We can't make more of it. This is a destructive force in our world. But the people who make money on it are willing to pay politicians to make sure it keeps happening. Money 
is so inextricably linked to politics and it's you know it's maddening and as a political newcomer I, I just have that point driven home for me more and more every day. But but having said that, right, I don't want to identify a problem and then just kind of like throw my hands up in the air. There's a way around this. You know, at the end of the day, everybody gets one vote. And that's something my campaign has been really focused on is getting the people who will benefit from me being in office, which is the vast majority of people to come out and vote for me because if they do right everybody gets one vote you don't have to have a dime to your name you still get to vote and we can you know you could say well this guy's clearly not been in politics he's so naive he actually thinks you can change the world that way darn it i do i really do think we can change the world that way one vote at a time so let, let's go back then because i want to sort of track how you got to both believing in that, but then also putting it into some kind of actual action. So, I mean, I, I see as we're recording this, you've got thousands of books behind you. So were you always, uh, were you always into books or let, let's start with that. As, as a kid, were you somebody who like, did your parents read a lot and hand them, hand them down to you or where did that start? You know, when I was really young and I only learned this later, when I was really young, uh, you know, in elementary school, when everything is kind of blended together, right with one teacher when it came time for reading i would be escorted from the room uh, with a couple of my classmates and we'd be taken to a portable classroom and i didn't really understand what was going on um it turns out that i didn't read well or possibly even at all and i was slowing folks down um my parents response to that was incredible they, you know, I, I won't, they didn't open a bookstore because of me, but they did open a bookstore later. Um, but they, they read to me every night and they got me so hooked on literature that every time we would leave the little town of Valentine where I grew up, we, you know, we'd go to North Platte or, or wherever we might be going, Rapid City, South Dakota. And we had to go to the mall because they'd have a Walden Books or we would know where that small independent bookstore was. And I would get new books. I would get new boxcar children. I read the Redwall series um, and so many others that I just got, you know, just fell in love with Roald Dahl and, um, you know, quickly uh, poetry. And I just read and read and read and read. And, you know, I guess, long story short, I've been teaching high school English for 17 years. So, I mean, what, what do you think it was that uh, these stories resonated with you the way they did? Uh, the, the ones that I was reading? Yeah, I mean, well, because a lot of people, if they have trouble reading, they resent that and they don't want to get into it. But I mean, for you, you were open to it and became passionate about it. I mean, well, how did that happen? You know, there's something kind of magical about the time that you spend with people that you love and and whatever it is you're doing. You know, we know people have great stories about falling in love with cooking because they cooked with their grandma. And so I think it was a lot of that. And um there was a natural symmetry when my parents opened a bookstore and, and I had access to this whole universe full of books. Um, you know, I think it just, uh, it, it kind of just fell into place, but. So, I mean, were you drawn to the types of stories about people changing the world around them? Was there an arc to what you're interested in, in terms of genre or narrative? I think I just liked a good story more than anything. As I think about my favorites, I was a big fan of humor. Uh, and still am, you know, Roald Dahl is, is terribly funny. Uh, don't, you know, if you exclude his short stories, which are horrifying, uh, generally, Roald Dahl is, is just really a humorous person. And my kids enjoy him to some extent today. Um, you know, we, we read the BFG recently. My, my son and daughter are five and three, respectively. Um, but uh, humor and... Uh, animals i was rude on to animals and uh for whatever reason the more i think about it mystery um you know there was always something about solving problems in a lot of these and and um i loved that so when you decided then uh to turn that into a job i mean as an english teacher so i mean that feels like that in and of itself is kind of a complete arc of going from struggling with it to then helping people who probably are struggling with it learn to love it or at least get something out of it uh, was that something that you came to like when you were first starting college or when did you know that that was something you wanted to actually explore as a career? 
you know, I, I often say that the people who made me become a teacher were my best teachers and my worst teachers. And I certainly wouldn't name my worst teachers. I could. I, I know exactly who I'm talking about, but, <laughs> you know, I'll be kind to them here. But I, I had some amazing teachers, um, people who, who loved their content area, but loved kids more. And they modeled that for me. And they're, you know, my junior English teacher, Bobby Dishman, was terribly sarcastic. And I think I saw in him parts of my mom and I took that with me. My my senior English teacher, who was also my speech and my drama coach, uh, Jen Nispel, is just this incredibly humorous, witty, good-natured person. And, um, you know, and, and I had, you know, there was the late uh, Rick Hesse was such a great man and was was just so good to me. So understanding when I was struggling, my high school principal, Dale Knapperstack, was really good to me. Um, my cross country coach, Dan Pablo. And and um, I think in particular, Ed Heinert comes to mind, my journalism teacher. There were just all these people who who poured themselves into me and and gave me a reason to hope when I couldn't find it on my own and let me see that I was intelligent and worthwhile. You know, there, there's no college where I grew up. I mean, people go to college, but there there's no college in our hometown. There was no, that wasn't just a guaranteed thing, you know? And, and these people were sure to let me know, hey, you're, this would be a good thing for you. And as I saw them doing their jobs so well and, and, and loving young people in such a way that it, it boosted them up and lifted them up. I, I thought, I want to do that. And I entered college as, a, as an English education major, and I, I graduated as one. And I think that's kind of rare. You know? <laughs> well, and then so when you actually got into the classroom, was, there, uh, was it difficult for you to figure out the rhythm? Because I certainly... When I think about uh, running for office or holding some sort of political office, there's there maybe is some parallel that could be drawn, right, between you have to figure out how to get a group of disparate people who some are probably on your side immediately, some maybe not so much, but you got to find some kind of unity and get them to listen to you. So, I mean, what was that like as a teacher to sort of figure that out? Oh, I mean, it's your first year of teaching, you know, it's as an English teacher, it, it, you're drowning and then someone hands you a book, you know, I mean, it, it's just, it's, if anybody's ever done that gracefully, then, then they're extremely impressive. And I, I'm sure they exist. I didn't, I, I did not ease into it gracefully at all. I struggled and floundered and made my mistakes, but fortunately I was surrounded by you know, a really supportive group of people who helped me become better with every mistake and coached me and counseled me and, and, um, you know, and still do. I'm at a different school now than I was 17 years ago, but I'm still surrounded by an incredible team of professionals who are so supportive. And, um, you know, I, I mean, th this last year and what we've been attempting to do teaching you know, remotely and in hybrid models during a pandemic and, and all these other things. And, and it takes these galvanized staffs of amazing people to make that happen. And fortunately, I'm, I'm still part of one of those. Well, and so when you started, uh, it sounds like from looking at your biography a little bit that you, you know, got involved in a lot beyond just teaching, it seems like. So, I mean, what were some of the other things that you started to do beyond or outside of the classroom? Yeah, you know, I've been, I, I kind of joke lately, like I've, I've done a lot in my life and I'm a pretty good juggler. Um, one of my grad school professors used to talk about the flaming chainsaws that I would keep in the air. He's like, you do so much, you know, and I've always been fairly good at, at sort of multitasking and prioritizing until I ran for office. And now, you know, I've, my to-do lists no longer get completed. I fall back on the Eisenhower quadrant every day. It's just a matter of what's going to get done and prioritizing, you know. Um, but I've always had a lot of energy. And, I, and I've always been, uh, to some extent, I think, very passionate about social justice and racial justice and human rights and equity. And I've, I've always wanted to apply that, you know. It's, it's something that can can be a part of you but but you can also take it and use it as fuel and and so that turned into my fuel for a lot of the things i did and again i i had so many champions in my life who helped lift me up and got me to these great places you know got me from from the holocaust museum in dc where i was a fellow i 
I got a small grant and met an amazing person, Drew Bider, and he and I had this idea. We'd, we'd both been kind of passionate about Rwanda and, and the Rwanda's recovery from genocide. And so, you know, Drew and I were speaking with a friend who was there with us uh, who worked at the museum, Pete Fredlake is his name. And he said, well, do it. And we wound up taking a model of conference that the Holocaust Museum has done successfully for many years and still does, and and putting it on at the Kigali Genocide Memorial. And from that, a, a nonprofit organization was born. And and um, you know today that organization works all over the world. It's been, you know, but it but all of it boils down, I think, to just kind of that that energy that comes from understanding that there are problems in the world, but they are not problems without solutions and that we all have a part to play. Well, I mean, those problems though, I mean, the, the Holocaust and various genocides, whether it's Rwanda or anywhere else, I mean, those are, those are the kind of problems that I feel like sometimes are so overwhelming. It's difficult to know what the solution is. Right. So, I mean, when you say there are solutions to something that's just sort of like these voids you can stare into and get lost in, how do you find solutions? How do you find hope and how do you move forward in that kind of situation? Yeah, you know, it's well, so those are, I think those are different questions. I'll, I'll try to get to both, but I'm a lot of my research as an academic is focused on the role of individuals and the complexity of individuals. Um, about half of what I've written at this point takes umbrage with Steven Spielberg's portrayal of Oscar Schindler, because there are a few nods to the fact that he was kind of a complicated guy that maybe made some mistakes, but the reality is the guy was a train wreck. Um, you know, his, his best friends were Nazis. He was an opportunist who was, who was living in a home that was stolen from Jews and operating a factory that he'd basically stolen from Jews and making money using Jewish slave labor. And, you know, he, he drank too much and cheated on his wife constantly and, and just, you know, and I don't mean to demean the dead, of course, you know, but my point is, and I, I teach about him this way, that man, the real Schindler, that man saved more than a thousand lives, right? And I think when we understand him as a muddy, complicated mess of a human, it's easier to see ourselves in him, right? If you tell me I have to live the life of Mother Teresa to make a difference, well, I'm not sure I can do that. I mean, what an extraordinary example she set. But if you tell me that despite my deficiencies, despite you know my, my humanity, I can still make a tremendous positive impact in the world. That's a message of hope. And I, I gravitate toward that. My students gravitate toward that. Um, and, and I think the idea that, yes, we all have a part to play, but, but we all have meaningful things to contribute to society um, is something that everybody needs to understand. What, what was the moment where you became so passionate about this concept of one person changing things? That's a great question. I think I think it came probably shortly after I landed in Kigali for the first time. Um, you know, I think anytime you travel to a new country, it's a little overwhelming. Um, you know, maybe, maybe not if you've fly into Cancun to a resort or something like that, you know, but I think anytime you're really like immersing yourself in another culture, it can be very, it's just eye opening. Mm -hmm. And you know what I've always told people about traveling, my heart just beats about 10 beats per minute faster than it normally is because I'm processing so much information. And, you know, my, my Kenya Rwanda is as bad as, is as bad as my French. And so I was not getting around well in Kigali the first time I was there. And yet the things that I saw were so inspiring. The people that I met were so inspiring. I mean, that nation in 1994 devolved into chaos. And I think most people are are relatively familiar, but uh, in case, you know, approximately a million people were murdered in just under, a, well, right immediately, actually exactly a hundred days. Um, and, and, and that nation yet, you know, the first time I visited in 2008, not only was it not chaotic, but it was almost flourishing. It is flourishing. And, and that's not to say that Rwanda is without problems. I think, I think Rwanda's problems are very well documented, in fact. 
Um, but to to go from 1994 to 2008, uh, you know, I mean, that that's 14 years, and 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 Europe didn't recover that quickly. You know, I think I think uh, you know Cambodia, you could argue, uh, is is still recovering from a genocide that took place between 1975 and 1979. So Rwanda is miraculous. And, and I found a lot of inspiration, not only in, in the country, but in the people that I met there. And so when you came back from that, or your several trips, I mean, just understanding Rwanda, it's culture a little bit better, and maybe even your own worldview developing, did that change your conception of America when you came back? Um, I think every experience that we have shapes our worldview. And, and it's, only, it's only through my own lenses that I can look at America, right? Mm-hmm. And so everything that happens to me, everything that I learn adds a layer of complexity to how I see everything in the world. And so, I mean, the, the short answer is yes, but I think the slightly more nuanced answer is how could it not? So what were some of the things, though, that stood out to you or were different when you looked at America? Um. Well, part of it, you know, from an historical standpoint, uh, I looked at the Clinton administration differently. And, uh, you know, still to some extent to this day do, although again, the more I learn, it just becomes more and more complicated. I looked at the international community differently. Um, I, you know, my, my perceptions of the United Nations, and I have to be a little cautious because I do some contract work there. Um, has changed. Um, I, I take students to the United Nations. You know, I think it, it, in principle, it's it's a really important idea, um, and and of course, everything can be improved upon. So there was the response of the international community, um, and that's you know the the role of the Belgians, the French. You could go on and on, but as I looked at my own country, you know, that the core text of the course I teach on genocide studies is a problem from hell. Uh, America in the Age of Genocide. That's the Pulitzer Prize winner from Samantha Power. And, um, you know, it, it's about America's role. And I tell my students when we when we get into this, you know, it's because we are in America that we use this book, right? It's not because America is singularly important to the rest of the world or that all of the world's problems should be blamed on us, in particular, these genocides. It is that we have a role to play. Right. If I'm going to say that I, as an individual, have a role to play, well, then of course my country has a role to play. And, you know, for, for the last four years, I think we've done almost nothing that wasn't destructive abroad. But hopefully that's about to change because I think that America's role in, in the world is an important one. And I hope that we can return to a place of, of, of positive influence. Hey, if you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Omaha mayoral candidate and educator Mark Gudgel. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Let us know what you think. We'll be back with more of the conversation after this break. Wherever or however you're listening to this podcast right now, you should take a moment and check out Stitcher. For those who don't know, Stitcher is a free podcast app for iPhone and Android and home to over 260,000 podcasts. Stitcher also has smart recommendations, playlists, a car mode, even a sleep timer. While the Stitcher app is free to use, they also offer a premium subscription called Stitcher Premium that has exclusive bonus episodes from top shows, exclusive shows from top hosts, and ad-free listening all for only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year. Like pop culture, you can listen to exclusive bonus episodes from Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness or LeVar Burton Reads, plus get early access to episodes of The Dream, plus many more on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcher.com slash premium to sign up today and use promo code Riverside on the monthly plan to get your first month free. If you're a fan of Riverside Chats and want to see the show not only continue but expand in new spinoff shows including a film club, a book club, and a news roundup, please consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash Riverside Chats. For as low as just $1 a month, you get access to exclusive audio as well as our full backlog of episodes. Our most recent 50 are always free. Older than that goes behind the paywall. So you get that plus exclusive content over at patreon.com slash Riverside Chats. Please consider becoming a patron today. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Remember that you can always find our most recent 50 episodes wherever you get your podcasts. 
Subscribe and leave us a review today or become a patron over at patreon.com slash Riverside Chats to get access to the full Riverside Chats backlog. Today I'm talking with Omaha mayoral candidate Mark Gudgel. Here's the rest of our conversation. You know, you've, you've seen places where there has been sort of this collapse or this sort of, uh, you know, the rise of authoritarianism and violence and all that. And I feel like especially it's kind of, it feels like a relevant question when we think about the attacks on the Capitol that just happened. So, I mean, I mean, do you feel like there are some parallels? Do you feel like you have, uh, I don't know, kind of a unique perspective to bring from understanding these other countries and these incidences the way that you do? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and, I always I, I teach my students briefly about this concept called Godwin's Law, right? The idea that you argue long enough, someone's going to introduce Nazis into the conversation and use it as a weapon, right? I, I think that people do use Nazis and Nazism and Hitler as an attack, right? But but there are real parallels to be made, and there are things that we can learn from these nations. Uh, I think most importantly, the most important thing is that if anybody is under the impression that that can't happen here, we, we got it. We have to get beyond that. It absolutely can. Um, there's a scholar I know named Jim Waller who says he believes that democracy is the best stopgap, um, you know, for, for genocide, a functioning democracy. But, you know, I, I'm not sure in 2021 that I can make the case that our democracy is functioning on such a level that it serves that way anymore. Uh, you, you mentioned polarization, and yes, I, th- I think we're in a very dangerous position. Um, the first piece of literature my campaign ever produced, I'm going to grab one here so that I don't misquote myself, um, <laughs> but it says, you know, the fact that Omaha can and should be better isn't a partisan idea. And, you know, I think partisan politics have become increasingly dangerous. Um, you know, and, and I'm sort of, I'm astonished by the things I see online, but I also think that that's part of the problem. Um, I was speaking with a colleague just after school today, and we were talking about how, how people get so brave when there's a screen between them. We'll say things on Facebook, you know, I'll write something on your Facebook wall that I would never say to your, to your face, you know? And so I think we have all kinds of, of, issues you know perfect storm is way too uh cliche here but there are an awful lot of things you know coming together and there's a dangerous symmetry to these things our our partisan politics our rhetoric certainly but then the means by which we do and don't communicate um you know all, all of that is dangerous and um you know that that's there there are no shortage of case studies as you pointed out so I, I assume that there were several other elements, uh, specifically more local ones, that ultimately led you to make the decision to run for office. But was there a moment or was it sort of like a culmination of feelings or how did you actually decide to run for mayor? You know, it really, it was this spring um, and, and it was a culmination. It wasn't a singular moment, but this spring, uh, you know, and, and bleeding into the early part of summer, you know, not to make light of it, but it just, it, I kind of looked around and went, wow, this city is poorly run. You know, I think it's quite possible. I'm, I'll own this. I, I, I'm a person of, of great privilege. You know, I'm, I'm an upper middle class, heterosexual, cisgendered white man. You know, like it just, you don't get dealt an easier hand to play than that one. And because of that, I have the ability to change the channel anytime I want to. I can stay insulated from some of these issues, but as a teacher and, and as someone who, who is in the service of young people and wants to do that job well and really loves the young people that I work with and, and many others as well, they don't have to be young. Um, I'm not able to ignore what's going on. And, you know, this, this city, there are no shortage. I mean, our our response to the pandemic was criminal and embarrassing. We were the last major city in the country to implement a mask mandate when we knew that that would save people's lives. There was no question about the science, not in the minds of any scientists. Um, but we refused to do it. We were slow to act. We were slow to protect people. Um, 
you know, the, the response, our, our citizens and our residents gathered to, to protest the murder of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, and, and they were met with chemical weapons, weapons that by the rules of war are not legal to use and yet somehow can be deployed on citizens. Um, you know, and so there was just time and time again, I was encounter I encountered the facts and the facts led me to believe we don't have a lot of time. You know, the more I started to analyze you know, a couple of years ago, right? I told you I've, I've worked in Rwanda. Well, Rwanda as a nation successfully banned plastic bags. The country did it. Um, when our city council did that a couple of years ago, it was vetoed by the mayor. Plastic bags are a destructive force in the world, and they are something that we can easily live without. And, you know, between that and, and just an egregious track record of not caring much for human rights, and, you know, I just, I looked at this city and went, I don't think we've got much time left. You know, uh, I mean, five years ago, there were there were 33 percent more Fortune 500 companies in this city than there are right now. And as someone who has led, I know where the buck stops. So I don't want to if you're in charge, I don't want to hear that's not your fault. I want you to fix it. And I don't see that happening. There's not going to be any anywhere left for my kids to work. You know, I've got a three year old and a five year old and. I'm terrified that they're going to do what what so many of my students do right now and leave. I I write uh, more. Le I've written this year more recommendations to the University of Chicago than I have to the University of Nebraska. That's a problem, but it's a problem with a solution. And I don't hear anybody floating real ideas to to solve that problem. And that's why I began. So are you running as a part of either political party? Uh, you know, it's an interesting question, right? So I'm a Democrat, okay. full stop. Yes. Um, there's no question about that. But it is a it is technically a nonpartisan race, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, like, a D will not appear behind my name on the ballot. Yeah. Well, because part of why I ask that, and I, my, you know, I, I guess I, I always sort of wonder, and I, I think one of the main problems I see in our politics is when there is the when there is either D or R behind or in front of whatever somebody's name. It does seem like part of what has led to a lot of problems is there's not real discussion of issues. Like I was kind of saying before, it's almost like you don't actually get the ideological split or debate. Oftentimes, you sort of just get teams. Like I like my team, and I don't really care that much what happens beyond that. So, and I, I think Omaha, I mean, though Omaha has had, it's, you know, has had mayors from both parties. It does feel like you get people who just are going to vote one way, no matter what. And they're not necessarily even looking at, do I like the person who's got the power right now? Do I like what they're doing? I'm not really going to look at the people running against them so much. So I guess a question I have for you is how do you push against sort of this closed mindedness uh, of partisan polarization uh, and you, I mean, how, how do you how do you fix that and sort of actually get to the point of having discourse in our politics? You know, I think it, it's the the brain drain issue that we've talked about is a really good example, right? Because I don't care what political party you're in, and I don't care how much money you've got, and I don't care where you live within our city limits. You don't want your kid going to college in Seattle and never coming back. You know, like we, we love our families. We love our children. Um, I, I might be proud of my son uh, for, for getting a scholarship to SLU. I might be proud of my daughter for going to Harvard. But at the end of the day, I'll always harbor hopes that they're going to return because I want to spend more time with them. And that's not partisan. The fact that that brain drain is is sucking young people out of our city, that they are leaving almost as quickly as industry and business is leaving our city. These are not partisan problems. These are Omaha problems, right? Um, climate change disproportionately affects uh, people of color and underprivileged communities, but eventually it will kill us all. 
And so these are not partisan issues. If you want to make it partisan and pretend that the climate isn't changing, I can't help you. But the reality is we're all going to die if we don't fix this problem, right? I may not personally, but I care about my children and I care about theirs. And anybody who cares about their children, I think can recognize uh, the problems that we're facing and go, actually that needs to be addressed regardless of who's, it needs to be addressed effectively, regardless of who's doing it. So, okay, give me your vision then. What What's uh, something that would change if you were mayor? Boy, um, yeah, I, I want to say how much time you got, but I know the answer <laughs> to the question. You know? <laughs> um, you know, this this Friday, we're going to unroll un, uh, really aggressive plans to fight climate change and increase our sustainability. And those delve into all kinds of other realms. Um, the next week we're going to release, uh, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't probably like share all the secrets. I hope none of my staff is gonna be like, you told him what, but you know, we've got a lot of policy coming out. Um, one of the things, you know, I, I regularly go and greet refugees at the airport when they arrive. And, you know, that's something that the mayor should do anyway, in my opinion, um, regardless of who they are. But, you know, the people who move to our country and specifically to Omaha can expect a lot more resources at their disposal. Um, one of the things that I'm passionate about as an educator in general is fighting for public schools. Um, and you can count on me to use the bully pulpit to defend public schools, to fight voucher programs, to fight charter schools, and to fight against Governor Ricketts, who in 2021 has decided to prioritize putting a cap on school spending, despite the fact that Nebraska's schools are ranked 48th out of 50 in the amount of money that we receive from the state. Um, we're going to fight hard to improve public transportation in this city. Uh, Orbit is really cool. I think we can agree with that, but it needs to be running north to south. And it needs to be running to the airport so that when people are coming here thinking about starting a business, they're able to hop public transportation into the downtown, not stand around in our generally pretty bad weather, no matter what time of year it is, and, and wonder how to get around. Um, I'm going to fight for small businesses and in meaningful ways, you know, Sacramento offered recovery grants. I was speaking with a small business owner just Sunday who was telling me about the recovery grants being offered in Sacramento. I went, Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we helping these small businesses stay open? I mean, you know, the, the restaurant scene, the vibrant restaurant scene has been such a great part of Omaha for so long. And, and, and they're shutting down fast and they need our help and they're not getting it. Um, you know, I want to fight for greater equity in housing. I am beyond incensed that we have devoted $80 million in TIF, right, in welfare for rich developers uh, that should be going to public schools. And we're giving it to rich people to build a project on prime real estate. You know, whoever whoever got it passed that 72nd and Dodge was a blighted area should be tarred and feathered, right? If you want to see a blighted area, look out the windows of my classroom. That's where TIF financing should be going. But instead we're building a new shopping mall with housing. And, and the nastiest part of it is it's not mixed income housing. And so as mayor, you'll see me fighting for more mixed income housing, more affordable housing for our residents um the things that ultimately will help to serve everybody so yeah i, I could go on yeah. but i feel if i've been talking for a long time <laughs> let me put a pin in this this uh the the concept of welfare i'm gonna talk about that for a second because it's used in a derogatory sense a lot of the time or it's used in a, as a kind of pejorative and you talk about welfare for businesses um so i mean what, what is the role of welfare in terms of the government helping people uh or helping corporations i guess depending on how you want it to go or where do you f see i mean in terms of like your political ideology how much of that should come from the government giving money to whatever it might be as opposed to this idea that everyone should sort of be able to figure it out on their own or even just the term welfare how do you feel about that um when i use 
uh, welfare in that context, right? It's it's there's there's a lot to unpack there. But if when I see the wealthy collecting welfare by dodging taxes, that is a derogatory, right? That that is an attack because those are the same people who are going to tell a working mom who loses her job that she should get a grip on her bootstraps and pull, you know, and, and that's, that to me is the problem. Uh, what I'll say is, is this, what is the point of having a government if it doesn't help the people? And we can localize that. Why have a city government if that government is not helping the people who live in the city? And so I think that the role of our municipalities governance is to improve the lives of the people who live here. And uh, we can do that by providing resources. One of my plans that will roll out soon that I'm incredibly fond of is modeled after something that's been done in cities all across the country from Pittsburgh to San Francisco. But we're going to make sure that every young person who graduates high school in Omaha, Nebraska, can go to college without paying tuition. Now, when I say college, I don't necessarily mean university. I was speaking with a young man after school today who wants to become an electrician. Awesome. You know, what a great job. We need electricians. It pays well. You'll get benefits. All of this is good. It will improve your life. But that's something that we can offer the same way other municipalities have. And that's not... Uh, you know, to, to call that quote unquote welfare and, and use that negatively. No, that's just improving the lives of the people who live in your city, you know, and, and that's what a government should do. I think it's, it's great for anybody running for office to be able to answer that question. That what, what is the point of government? I mean, these are such simple, broad questions, but I do feel like a lot of the times we get so stuck in some of the details that, it actually is helpful to step back to literally, you know, why have any kind of government, why have any kind of civilization? So how did you form uh, your specific ideas? Were there specific, uh, you know, works that you read or engaged with to try to come up with uh, your belief in here's what government should do, either at a big level or at a local level? Uh, you know, there there are so many that, that uh, you know, all kind of play their own little part. Um Martin Luther King is incredibly eloquent. I'm full stop. He's incredibly eloquent. But in in strength to love, um, there there's some there's some amazing stuff in there that I think helped form my worldview. I read that at the same time I was reading Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire, and those probably had an interesting symmetry with one another. Um, but I think you know ultimately what has formed my views more than even more than my reading has been my experiences and in particular my experiences uh working with young people whether it's in this country or any other hmm. um, because they more than anybody i think have the idealism that they have this unchecked idealism right they're they're not worried about how much money they're squirreling away in their 401k every month they want to they want to save the world. They want to improve the world. They recognize that there's enough food in the world that no one should ever be hungry again. And they want to figure out how to distribute it. And I think being around young people who, who genuinely care like that for others, um, it, you can't help but be inspired by it. And they make me better. I think I, I keep uh, maybe asking about things you've read just because there's all these books behind you, and I, I'm maybe I'm just fishing for book recommendations on some level. I'm happy to make them. So I guess a, a question I always seem to ask people who have more progressive agendas as they as they start to run for office and they come on the show is there's sort of the clash of you've got an, an agenda that would be it would enact a lot of change, and there's a lot of people who are resistant to change and don't want to see. Uh, you know, they, they want sort of like the incremental shifts as opposed to these bigger ones. So, I mean, how do you get the city on your side on some of these issues where maybe people agree, okay, yeah, that person maybe should get some help, but I don't know if we want to change things too much. How do you, how do you, how do you sell that? You know, I do so frequently when I'm, you know, whether I'm calling constituents or just happen into somebody, I talked to a couple of gentlemen today who 
who said to me, you know, things are, things are really okay. And then you, but if you challenge that assertion, right, I think that we quickly begin to recognize how not okay they are, but how tough we are. We're people. We, we are resilient. And it's amazing what we can learn to tolerate. These roads are a disgrace. You know, I mean, you, you can't drive around this city and think that, you, you know, your car knows that this city is not well managed. Your car knows that. And so if you're the one driving it, you probably do too. Um, and so I think the more we push back, you know, people go, well, this city is okay. And I go, what, what about TD Ameritrade and ConAgra being gone? You know, what about all the people who worked there who don't live here anymore, who don't pay taxes here anymore? Right. Um, what, what about all, you know, and you can, you can go on and on and on about the, the failures of the last decade in this city. Um, but I think when you start to point out specific examples, people begin to realize, wow, you're right. If anything, we've just kind of been coasting. And I think as soon as they recognize that there is in fact a danger to this city, right. That, that we may very well not here anymore. I mean, the, the buildings will still exist, but there are no, I mean, if, if you've been to Detroit, you know how badly you don't want to be Detroit, right? And so, and, and I, I, I don't mean that disrespectfully, um, but to have your major industries pack up and leave devastates your economy. And we're on the verge of that. Right, our big businesses, our small businesses, and our young people, our talent are all evacuating this city as if it's on fire. And if you can point that out to people, I think even if they personally right now are doing okay, I think they recognize that they don't wanna see their city become what it inevitably will become if we stay on this path. So to sort of tie things full circle as we approach the end here, it does seem like your idea that, or your commitment to this concept that one person can make a change is also sort of predicated on the idea that there are enough people who also have come to that conclusion, right? So, I mean, you do end up with a collective eventually of people who've reached similar conclusions, right? Uh, so, I mean, do you, are you, you're ultimately optimistic that Omaha can move that direction, but you sort of, you have to maybe take the mantle to shake off some complacency for uh, the, the, the city to get there? yeah i think that's that's really what it is one of the things that i think is going to be so important to my administration is going to be better public information i regularly meet with people who say to me i don't even know what the mayor does right that's a problem um we're gonna really you know i i host a weekly podcast uh which you can find on our webpage gudgelformayor.com but we it comes with a newsletter um, I take every opportunity like this one, and thanks again for having me, to talk to people and to reach people with these ideas. But you can absolutely expect my administration, once we take office, to communicate well with the people of Omaha. Here is what is happening. Here is why it is happening. And that is definitely not being done right now. And I think that when people, you know, we're smart people. We're Midwesterners. We are intelligent. We are hardworking, salt of the earth folks. And I think when you present smart, hardworking, salt of the earth folks with facts there, you know, and, and actually provide them with information, you can absolutely, I believe in Omaha to make the right decisions. I believe in Omaha to join me in forging a path forward that is going to be better for our children, better for our grandchildren and everyone to come. And not only that, but a model for every other city in the American Midwest about what actually can be accomplished when we come together and work for it. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Where should people go to find more about your campaign and what you're up to? Uh, so the campaign webpage is gudgel for mayor G-U-D-G-E-L-F-O-R, mayor dot com um we're active on facebook twitter and uh instagram and it'd be great to be followed there uh we we actually put out a lot of content and information on on the campaign's social media 
And um, beginning on Friday, you know, that newsletter and podcast I mentioned um, for the, you know, beginning on Friday for the next month, it's going to be all devoted to policy rollouts that I think people will be very interested in. Um, and, and the promises that I'm making to this city and, you know, people have cautioned me. They've said, well, don't make that promise. What if you don't keep it? And I say, if I can't keep that promise, I should be voted out of office, but I'm not running for mayor to keep the seat warm. I'm running to make a difference and, you know, darn it, we're going to do it. So I hope people tune in and, and, uh, check out our policies and, um, also reach out to me. I'd absolutely love to hear from anybody who is interested in this city and, and my ideas for it and what my administration will do once we're in office. All right. One last thing I want to ask, uh, because I've been circling it. What's, uh, what's your favorite book? What, what can you recommend to me? Oh, my favorite book. One, one book. I mean, I'm running for office in the American Midwest. There, there is a, there is a book I'm supposed to say is my favorite, right? Um, you know, I, I'm a huge, I, and, and part of this is that I'm a dad, but I am just such a fan of the Harry Potter series. And uh, just just in finishing up Goblet of Fire right now with my son. Um, if I were to, to, to go outside that, though, uh, I think most recently, Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist has been phenomenally informative um, is one of those that has really helped contribute to my worldview and, and has helped to further shape uh, not only my passion for social justice and equity, but also my approach to it. All right. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. And I appreciate the time you spent talking to me. I had a great time talking. Tom, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Riverside Chance is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exorbin Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, and our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. You can find our backlog of episodes, including other people running for mayor of Omaha, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash riversidechats to get access to our entire backlog of shows. I'm Tom Noblock, and as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>